Welcome to Writer's Blockbusters, the show where we treat the final edit of the movie like the script. I'm one of the hosts, Bob Rose. You can find me at Thundergrunt Bob on all the dumb social medias. And right now, Jimmy is going to introduce himself. I am Jimmy George. I am a screenwriter and script consultant. My Twitter X whatever handle is at Jimmy R. George, and my threads handle is at underscore Jimmy George. And... Yeah, now Jamie or Pazuzu okay. as his uh, Pazuzu <laughs> as his name on the Zoom says. Yes, I am Jamie Nash. I am a screenwriter, and I am also the writer of two Save the Cat books: Save the Cat Writes for TV and the Save the Cat Beat Sheet Workbook. Go buy them on Amazon. And my Twitter handle is Jamie underscore Nash. I'm not on any of the new stuff yet, so find me there. But I just want to point out, not to like drag Jamie here, but you spelled Pazuzu wrong. Yeah, I, I kind of knew. I kind of knew it was. I was. Hey, I thought it, so yeah. you might as well say it. I kind of knew I was spelling it wrong, but that's part of the sinister, diabolical nature. Right, right. Ah. There's the evil. That's the evil. Uh, as you might, if you know who Pazuzu is, you already know what we're doing, which is we're talking about The Exorcist, the original, not I'm, not any mm-hmm. of the what five sequels now. Yeah, well, I think we're on number If you five. count the, the prequel twice, because they made two but, versions of it, remember? But, if you count but, the prequel twice, I think it's... By the yeah. way, it's it's a bit of a spoiler, but I'm working on IP for a Pez movie called Pezuzu. It's a possessed <laughs> Pez dispenser. You heard it here yeah. first. You like it like bites your tongue when you're trying to eat. Yeah. <laughs> it's part of the Pezuzu. it's part of the green lights after Barbie. Like they just want a movie for everything. That's right. right. They wait. So <laughs> I that slipped out. You weren't supposed to say that. You have to sign everyone that's listening has to sign an NDA. The candy inside is spoiled. Yeah. Oh, oh guys, this is great. Um anyway, we're gonna talk about the original Exorcist, uh William Freakin's masterpiece from the seventies. Uh, Isn't it 50 years old? This don't year? make me do yeah. math. So. Um, 50 years yeah, old, 1973. Right. December 26th, 1973. Uh, we're going to talk, before we go get into our talking points, we're going to go around and say our relationship with this movie real quick. So who wants to start? Uh, I'll go ahead and yeah, start. I have a couple very insignificant stories, but whatever. Um, the So... If you've listened to this show in the past, you might have heard me talk about how different my dad's point of view on movies is. He's the man who doesn't really give a shit about characters. He says nobody watches movies for characters. (laughs) So very different from me. So the one and only time in my life that my dad got excited to show me a movie was this one. We, uh, when I was 12 years old, um, so 1992, um, had a sleepover with a couple friends and he was like, what do you guys want to do? And we were like, we want to go to Blockbuster and get a, get a scary movie. And he was like, all right, I'm going to get you the scariest movie of all time. And he showed it to us and we didn't have the heart to tell him at that time. We, you know, we were cocky 12 year olds. We were like, it wasn't that scary. Right. Um, but you know, as I've gotten older, of course, I think it's like a masterpiece and I think it's very scary and a very hard watch, um, as an adult. And then my second story is, uh, the first feature film that I co-wrote and co-produced the one and only film festival that we got into, it was in 2007 in Modesto, California called Shocker Fest. 
Um, and the highlighted guest was Eileen Dietz, who is the stunt double for Reagan in all of the bed stuff. And the movie they were showing was, a re you know, after all of the festival entries, they were also having a big revival screening on the big screen of The Exorcist. So I got to see, I got to technically play alongside The Exorcist in a film festival with our movie Book of Lore and got to meet Eileen Dietz and got to see it on the big screen in a film festival crowd. So it was really fun. Um, and yeah, those are my, those are my two Exorcists. Cool. Uh, ja Jamie? Or Pazuzu, sorry. Pez, Pez, Pez Uzu. Uzu. <laughs> um, yeah, so I saw this in the theater when it came out when I was two years old. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it was the first movie I ever saw. The um, first thing uh, you ever saw. <laughs> first thing. Yeah. And I remembered it. <laughs> no, I loved it. It was my favorite movie. Um, I, uh, I... As you can see, I have a poster over here uh, signed by Linda Blair. Whoa. Yeah. Um, so this this movie is um, it's very interesting in that. So it came out when I was a baby, but it it weighed heavy as I got into of age, and and you know it was it got much like Jaws. Jaws came out a little bit before I saw it in the theater, but The Exorcist was a very similar movie in that it came out. And people were talking about people were reading the book and i grew up catholic so this movie was like but by the way all the catholics went to see it you know they they devoured this movie in a weird sort of way even though they believed it was kind of evil and they shouldn't be watching it and it was taboo and they were kind of freaked out by it like you know all the adult catholics kind of went and saw this movie which is kind of weird you know in, in some ways but they did they they, they rushed to it. So in some ways it was, it was, this movie was kind of a true story and, you know, or, or this could happen or this would happen or, or something like that. So I grew up kind of under that shadow of this is, this is that thing that could happen. Um, and um, for that reason, this movie kind of scared me. Like I didn't want to see it for a long time. And I think I saw it more in bits and pieces over the years. Like I saw the end more than I saw the beginning. So I think I don't even remember when I saw the whole thing, to be honest. But it wasn't when I was really affected by it. When I was really affected by it was when I just saw the bits and pieces of it. When I just, it was mostly the end that I saw uh, the exorcism scenes. Because then when I went back and I said, she's an actor. What the, you know, what is this? And there's a detective going around and, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> It was kind of it was kind of confusing to me in some ways um, because I knew the end so well. Um, but so between that and I did read the book at a very early age. I, I may have read the book before I saw the entire movie. Um, so you know the book definitely in, informed me and stuff like that. And I was into exorcisms and ghosts and all that kind of stuff. And and kind of especially in that I read all the books by like. Um, basically the Catholic priests who claim to do exorcisms and stuff like that over the years. So in that way, this movie loomed large. And if you would have asked me like, what's the scariest movie for many, many years, I would say this, this movie was the scariest movie because I was kind of afraid to watch it. It was, it was kind of, and I remember when I finally did watch it, maybe I was around 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that range. And I remember like, I never really, took a movie with me. I remember like sleeping at night and hearing the air conditioner and thinking something was whispering in my room and you know, that kind of thing. And it really did uh, 
freak me out or stick with me a little more than some other movies. So that's that's my exorcist. But for a while, I'd say it was the scariest movie I've ever seen. And anytime I watched it, I'd have to kind of ready myself and be in the right mood. Um, not anymore. Now I watch it. I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, just, just kind of watching it. It's it's I've definitely hardened over the years that it's not it doesn't frighten me that much or, it, you know, I don't even think twice about it. Um, but anyway. Cool. Um, I'm also I'm also I was raised Catholic. I'm Italian, raised Catholic, so you know I do have that connection to this movie. But that's you know Jamie already covered that, and you know I love this movie. It's a masterpiece, all that stuff. But I want to say the same thing I always seem to say on the show, which is <laughs> I came to The Exorcist late, and the thing that I saw before The Exorcist several times was repossessed with Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that on Comedy Central in the 90s so many times before I ever just sat down and watched The Exorcist. So my like, you know, it's one of those things where culture kind of spoiled The Exorcist for me. And then when I saw it, like Jamie said, uh, you know, it's not the sc- it wasn't the scariest movie I ever saw. You know, it was it's it was it was good. It just wasn't the scariest movie I ever saw. So and back then I just, you know, I was I was younger. But I'll say this. Um <clears throat> Remember the director's cut? I believe that's on the poster behind you. Jimmy. It is. It is. Yeah. By the way, that's what I watched for this. Um, oh, how okay. dare you? Because <laughs> I own it. I know it's it. the one I it's own. Fine. So I just watched it's it. It's on Max, yeah. too, the um, original cut. Oh, really? The original cut. Really? Okay. Uh, but remember when that came that. back to theaters and it was like a huge deal? Like, I went. I remember going to the movie theater with my friends on like a Friday night in 2000, I want to say. Uh, and it was like a packed house to watch the director's cut of the exorcist um that's something i don't even know like if they would ever do again or that would be received yeah, as well just of any movie Dude, ever there was like a line at at uh white marsh for people waiting to see the exorcist in 2000 it was nuts they had like uh spit pee uh vomiting contest before the movie started and shit it was awesome like people were really excited um and so anyway, that's one of my favorite, like of a top five favorite uh, movie going experiences is seeing the exorcist awesome. director's cut in theaters, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but I mean, the similar thing was when Lucas re-released the Star Wars movie. Yeah, well, they, Star they Wars did is, have a, a big is its own beast, though. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're talking about the exorcist, yeah, though. Like, yeah, it's weird well, to have I a mean, special. It wasn't and it wasn't a special edition. It was just a different cut with an old scene added in. Where they just removed wires, <laughs> really? Right? right? I mean, yeah. It's. I think there's some. There's additional medical footage. Yes, you're right. <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. Uh, a little bit of expanded in the beginning, and and you know some some. I like the director's cut. I'm not trying to fine dog on the director's cut at all. I'm just saying. Yeah. It surprised me back then, and now thinking back, it surprises me even more how much power this movie had. That mm-hmm. re-releasing it actually like it was full of like young people were in the theater to see the exorcist yeah you know um you know now when i watch it i'm not scared of it either anymore it doesn't it doesn't scare me anymore but i think it's it's funny i'm the opposite yeah yeah i know but it's i find it to be just such a well-made amazing movie so it's like you know i still love it there there was a time when jaws scared me too and that doesn't scare me either i still love jaws i think it's great um it just doesn't you know, I mean, yeah. when you see the jump scares a million times and you can me- yeah, memorize, they're not scary anymore. Uh, I, that's 
kind of the way I don't want to waste time but Jamie what is the scariest movie I, I don't know okay. I don't know I Exorcist used to be my go-to but now especially after I watched it like the last few times I've watched it I can't say that with a straight face anymore I could say it was the scariest movie that affected me at one point in my life so in some ways it still is the truthful answer because no movie scared me as much as this movie in my life it just isn't the scariest movie now when I reflect back on it you know um I, I'd have to say to me, it's probably something that's a little bit more reality based um, or something. I don't know that's the scariest, but I even remember seeing, and I, this isn't a movie many people have seen, but there's a movie called The Snowtown Murders. And I saw that and it kind of freaked, I was like, man, this is disturbing on a different level. Um, it didn't scare me. It didn't, but it, w- it was a true story. And just watching the true story, it, I think that has something to do with it. No, um, I was going to say, like, for me, I, I don't get scared of movies that much. Like, it's just yeah, something that I don't either. It doesn't don't happen. Either. So whenever anyone like talks about their love of horror and getting scared, I'm always like, I don't it doesn't compute for me because I don't get it. You I, know what I mean? I, I either have to do one of two things. I have to go back to a time when a movie did scare me and The Exorcist was one. Right. Jaws was one. There's Poltergeist was one. Um, I have to go back to a time when movies did affect me, which was many, many years ago. Or I have to kind of say, like almost from a craftsman's perspective, right. like what's this movie that's I think is the most frightening to an audience, and you know, so then I'm in a different place uh, thinking about it. But when I really think, like, what movie scared me? Yeah, it's hard. That's a hard question. Just pure and simple. Like, like if I watch that, I'll never watch that again because it scared me. If if a movie was really like that, if it really scared me, I probably wouldn't watch it. To be honest, if you don't, you're not, you're not reason, looking for that high, huh? I'm not looking yeah. to be scared in my life. I'm scared enough. You know, I don't need, uh, but you know, this is an argument a lot of people have against horror, why they don't watch horror. But I think for a lot of us horror fans, we're scared in the moment or it's frightening or we enjoy the craft of being scared or the kind of game of being scared. But some of us, um, just kind of enjoy the dark storytelling. Yeah. You know, we like, we like the, like, I like, gallows humor i like darkness there's just something even in an adventure movie i kind of like darkness you know a little darkness and taste it like in lord of the rings i like how it mixes a little bit of dark flavor and horror in it or something um so i don't know and this is a long no but no i think it's an important thing to talk about because we are talking about the scariest movie ever made quote unquote right like why do audiences want that is always a weird question to me. I used to manage a video store and people would say, what's the scariest movie you've ever seen? And I go, I don't know. I, and then I'd recommend something and then they come back and complain that it wasn't scary enough. And I'm like, <laughs> and they're like, they scared you? And I was like, no, nothing scares me. It's fake. And, I was like, I, movies are fake. You and know? I, I, have, I have this as a topic for later, but, um, you know, I, I've been mulling around i've been kind of journaling writing a book whatever about horror recently and i started to think about this this topic um of why i think um the exorcist was the scariest movie at the time um it's funny i'm not really ready to i want to look up my notes on it let me see if i can find them i mean for me Um, this i think the connection is religious i think that's what i would say for a lot of at least for a lot of people that I would know in my family and stuff, you know? Yeah. You know, and, yeah, and I, I, you know, for me, I was raised Catholic. There is some, you know, it's speaking to that religion specifically, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there, there is that direct connect. Yeah. I, yeah. I was, I have, I, go ahead, Jimmy. 
I was thinking about how in the in the climax, you know, the power of Christ compels you. I was thinking to myself as I was watching it, like, I wonder how other religious so, people of other religions respond to this particular part, like of how the power of Christ. Right. Compels right. You, I, they right? might be like, like oh, they, Christ. It might take him out of the movie. I have. Yeah, I have, yeah you know, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I have a good yeah. friend who does listen to the show. Um, his name is Jeff and he is Jewish and he has said, well, I've been on his show several times and whenever this comes up, he's like, it's a great, well-made movie. I respect it completely. It doesn't scare me at all because it doesn't possession and stuff. It just doesn't ring to anything. <laughs> There's no personal connection there. Um, we did, we did an exorcist three podcast together and we talked ah. about this. Did, so. Didn't he see the Dybbuk box movie? Was that possession? I did. I saw that in theaters. Called? It yeah. was, it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> that movie yeah. was okay. <laughs> so, so, um, so yeah, so in in this in this kind of pseudo book that one day I I might publish or something, but I I kind of asked myself like, you know, th there are kind of two types of horror scares in my opinion, right? There's there's one that I call kind of the ooga booga horror, <laughs> like it's it's and the ooga booga comes from I I was working on I did the Bush Gardens Halloween event one year, like I. I wrote like a lot of the marketing with with Ben Rock. He's the Blair Witch uh, guy. Who did the stick figure, you know, and um, and he and I were talking because when we were designing the stuff for for Bush Gardens that year, and he was like, "I don't really like haunted houses. You just walk through and a bunch of people jump out at you and go ooga booga, you know, and that's it." And that's <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, I kind of I kind of see that too," um, and I think there are some horror movies that are just all about the ooga booga, you know. That's like that's all they are. Um, jump scares, just, right? Jumps, jump scares, yeah, yeah. frightening moments. They're in the moment, the reality. But I think the reason I peg The Exorcist, maybe there's some other movies like Blair Witch might come to mind. Um, they're stick to your, kind of stick to your nerves. They're take-home horror. You know what I mean? They're they're takeaway horror in some ways. I, I call them parting, they give you parting gifts. Um, ah. That when you get home, you remember them. And this is why I picked The Exorcist as my, scariest movie because it did that to me years ago years ago and um i think there's three keys if you want to do this if you want to have that it's kind of a mean thing to do is to give people parting gifts uh to scare them in their life to give them more anxieties but uh, as a horror writer i'm a i am kind of mean uh, i'm a mean person i mean that's what they're there for that's what they're paying for i want to i want you to remember my movie so i'm going to give you a parting gift to remember it by um and I think some of them, so I, I, I broke it down to three things you could do to kind of give this kind of parting gift horror. Um, one is confront our actual fears and beliefs. Like, like just do something that embodies what we actually think might be true might, and real. And Exorcist does that. So if you, if you're a, if you're a Catholic, if you believe in possession, and especially back in 1970s when parapsychology was getting kind of hot and we were still weren't quite to the era where everything was being debunked. Um, like TikTok like none didn't of this, exist. TikTok didn't <laughs> exist. There were a lot of things like when I watched in search of and stuff, I just kind of accepted them as real because they, they were on TV and I, nobody was saying, why would they film true. it? If it wasn't true, why would they film it? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of the start of that, but there really was no pushback against that stuff. Um, and, and the exorcist fed right into that. So whether, you know, UFOs of firing in the sky, a fire in the sky, the conjuring series, which is all kind of based on true stories, anything that could kind of 
some people might believe is real. And that's why serial killer movies and Halloween and stuff like that, you know, always work. Um, and then the other two things that I, I come up with horror on home turf. So anytime you put anything horrible in somebody's home turf, you're leaving them with a parting gift because, uh, whether it's, you know, the clown and poltergeist, like if we have a clown or creepy doll or something like that, we might get creeped out and say, well, in poltergeist that happened and it starts planting seeds in your head. Chucky. Or Chucky right. on the ocean and Jaws. I mean, we all go swimming, the beach and stuff like that. So now suddenly we're thinking about that because we're swimming as well. Um, and then, you know, the, the Blair Witch Project going camping or something. The bed Lost in the woods. Lost in the woods. The 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 bedroom window of Salem's lot, you know, now we're staring at our window and there's a tapping. What is it? Could it be that creepy kid? You know? So any, anything like that, if you can put it on things we recognize, we all recognize and we all experience, that's the second part of the parting gift. And then the third part that I thought about everyday questions, horrible answers. Um, so, and, and this movie has at least one of those, uh, what's that noise up in the attic? Must be rats. You know, and no, it's not rats. You know, we give you a horrible answer. It's Pazuzu. Yeah. So, so, you know, any minor mystery you have and you know, is that, is that a plumbing issue or, you know, I wonder why my door was open last night. You know, things like that. If you can provide horrible answers to those everyday questions, um, then you can give people parting gifts. So they were kind of the three things I analyzed as my parting gift horror if that you can uh, add to your mix i was gonna say for in that with that in mind it's like this movie uh, what jaws does for going to the water this movie does for ouija boards right i mean straight up yeah i mean it did yeah. right like people were literally like they're a tool of evil after this movie came out right yeah it's it's funny i don't even know that i really knew that until i went back you know almost like it was a chicken egg thing like which came first in my life and i think ouija boards came before i realized how prevalent they were how important they were to the exorcist, you know, um, once Parker brothers so, started selling them, it was like, <laughs> they, took, <laughs> they took the magic right out of that. Uh, well, <laughs> they, they probably had a huge boom after this movie. You know? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was like, let's do what they did in that movie. Yeah. And get possessed. Uh, okay. So let's get into some I, stuff. I jumped the gun a little that's bit. Fine. I jumped in. I was, no, that's okay. That's fine. No, it was it good. Was perfect timing. Perfect timing. By, by, by the way, the box office for this movie, is, and William Peter Blatty wrote the screenplay to this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because I was about to say he wrote this shit. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I just, I'm, I'm kind of catching up back to my... Um, back. We're rusty you know, a little what bit. I, fine. What I skipped over, I'm, I'm going back to. Yeah. Um, and... He wrote the book. He wrote the screenplay. Um, he directed the third movie. Did did he ha did he really have anything else that he's really well known for? No. Trying to third me, movie rules though. Everyone third watch movie? Exorcist three. Never seen. Dude, it. it's so awesome. Now it's, Exorcist um, two. Well, you have fun with that. <laughs> yeah, he has some other. He has Mastermind in nineteen seventy six. All right. Um, the ninth configuration. Uh, That's uh, anyway. Here's a couple things. It's a pretty good movie. I've, the I ninth watched, configuration. I watched it recently. Yeah, 1980. Um, and the movie, the movie's box office in 1973. So this doesn't, I think, account for the re-releases and things like that. Was was kind of huge when you think about it. It was a hundred. 
and $93 million Ooh. in 1973. It was the number wow. one top grossing movie of 1973. So it was number one at the box office. And just to give you a feel for some of the things that year, I think this is our, is this our oldest movie we've done? Either Jaws or this, if Jaws yeah, this came is out old. before. Yeah, this, this is older than Jaws. Jaws. Yeah. So this yeah. is the oldest movie we've ever discussed. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, Jaws kind of changed things and really put the blockbuster on the map. But looking at this, I mean, I know this didn't have as many theaters, which even makes it more impressive. Um, it didn't have the release strategy Jaws had. But this is this is a blockbuster. I mean, almost mm -hmm. $200 million in 1973. The Sting was right behind it uh, with one about $160 uh, million. And then a movie that we think of as a blockbuster kind of breakout film, American Graffiti, was $115 million that year. Um, and, the, you know, and then there's a big drop off. The next movie's 53 million. It's uh, Papillion. Papillion, is that how you pronounce that? Uh, th then The Way We Were, Magnum Force, Live and Let Die, Robin Hood, Paper Moon, and Serpico are the next. And and Serpico only made $28 million at number 10. So it shows you how. Yeah, that's how huge the exorcist was yeah, in comparison shit. to these other movies um i was gonna say adjusted i just looked it up adjusted for inflation in 2022 dollars it it's made like 500 no 1.01 billion dollars oh wow that's so that's how, oh. that's how big the exorcist was in 1973 yeah, yeah. wow yeah yeah it has tickets sold in, in this list and it's close to 110 uh 110 million yeah that's that's what it is uh tickets sold well i mean so, so you know, a third of the country saw it <laughs> tickets were like a buck and change back then yeah like you said take home hard you you tapped into a religion and 95 percent of the planet is tapped into that so you know do the math yep yeah um all right we are we kind of already did talk about why i think this movie often gets scariest movie right that's, yeah, that's, that's already that's, done. That's, yeah, that was that's where I did. jumped here. Mm -hmm. Right. So you guys want to talk about the sin? Yeah, I brought this up because I number one, I wanted to hear Jamie's wind up. Uh, okay. You know, I wanted to wind <laughs> Jamie up <laughs> and let him go. But also because I think it's, you know, I think it's debatable and I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I to, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, the sin is something that comes from the save the cat monster in the house genres to talk. We always talk about the genres on the show, the save the cat genres. They're really story patterns. Uh, there's 10 types of save the cat genres that Blake Snyder came up with. Some of them include golden fleece, uh, buddy love. Um, what other ones dude with a problem, but the one we talk about all the time is monster in the house. And the elements of monster in the house are there's a monster there's a, and it could be human, it could be um, a curse. It could be all kinds of things, the monster. Um, there's a house and the house is, it could be geographic, but it could be the human body or something like that. It could be the mind, I, right? I, yeah, I always, I always say it's kind of also has to do with the trap, like why you can't get away. But that's not something Blake necessarily said, but it's kind of my wrinkle on it. And then last but not least, there's a sin. There's something that, there's some sin that makes the heroes kind of culpable so that anything could happen in some weird ways. And sometimes it's not, it's not committed. Like, like in this movie, Reagan doesn't commit the sin. It can be committed by society, like poltergeist, you know, they, they, the company moved, they built the, 
the houses on top of the graveyard and just cleared the tombstones. So it could be something like that or an alien. um, I'm trying to remember what the alien one specifically is, but it's kind of the corporate greed of sending them to the planet. It was Mm -hmm. greed. Yep. Uh, yeah. So, so it can. It doesn't have to be the main character necessarily commits. Yeah, they're dealing with the consequences of, of the sin. Right. whatever yeah. the sin is. Yes. yes. Yeah. And I, I always say the reason it's there is it creates this filmic karma situation because uh, we know if some sin or atrocity happened, karma dictates that there's a price to be paid, whether it's innocent lives or or guilty lives but there could be some price to pay so it it messes with us as an audience in that we're like well yeah that's the consequence you have sex at camp jason's gonna get you very adam and eve you know it's very uh original sin kind of idea but the sin the sin of this movie what do you think um i i think some people would say it was reagan i think some people would say it was reagan i'm not saying that but i think that i can can tell you what Blake Snyder, um, there's a podcast online, and I haven't listened to this in a long time, but it's the best of Blake. And he basically was giving a lecture. And when he talked about Monster in the House, he referenced The Exorcist as oh. for his sin. And I can tell you what he said. Okay. Um, and I I tend to agree with it, but then the debatable part comes in that I also kind of can go off with. So what, what Blake says is the sin is the mother's neglect for her child. Uh, that's what she, he thinks. And the way he posits it, and this is something that I can say resonates with a lot of parents. It, neglect is a very strong word, but you know, she has her own life. She's an actress. She, she's getting divorced. Um, she may not have a lot of time. She kind of pawns her kid off to somebody else. So um, maybe the guilt there is, am I doing enough for my child? Did I, did I not give her enough attention and, you know, security because I was off doing my thing. And she got into things like Ouija boards and stuff like that when I wasn't looking. So there's a certain sense of, um, like I said, neglect's a strong word, but you can think, especially in the seventies, single mom who works, you know, and is divorced. Um, you know, there's a lot of that playing in, not, not necessarily that it's saying that's a bad thing, but it's playing into the guilt that might be associated with a mother yeah. and their daughter. I am not team Blake here that's at, at all. At that's all. Like yeah, vehemently not him. Go ahead. You guys. <laughs> well, so I'll, so I'll, I'll sort of piggyback off of that yeah. and say that he's talking about something that I thought what did stand out and was circling around, which is like adjacent to that, mm-hmm. which is the notion of, choosing your job over your loved ones because both yep yep both chris the you know ellen burson's character's name is chris because mm-hmm. we're gonna be talking about her for the rest of the show yep. chris right. is married to her job yep. and that comes at the expense of reagan yeah basically getting putting her energy into other things and and damien uh father Karis, is also married to his job and mm-hmm. that comes at the expense of his relationship with his mother, the guilt and shame he feels about not being yep. able to be there for her. That and that with. is what, and so mm-hmm. both of those things, you know, we, you've talked about Jamie, that the sin is what invites the horror, right? Mm-hmm. The sin mm-hmm. is what invites the monster. Mm-hmm. So 
in that way, both of those things are what led to, you know, the evil being able to take advantage of the situation. But there's this whole other side thing. I hate, I hate, I love- I hate this. I hate, I hate, I think that's a <laughs> terrible explanation. Go ahead. I, I really don't like it, but it's fine. Um, and then the other thing, the, the, the obvious one is lack of faith. Like they yes. make, they put a lot. Yeah. But, but see, Bob, that's, that's she's so a, obvious. She's an atheist that, and he said he lost his faith. Right. So that that's leads the sin. to the horror. That's the right. sin. I neglect the neglect to me doesn't even read on screen. I'm sorry. That me, doesn't read on screen. At, at yeah, I love that. We, that does we not see it read. differently for once. That does not read. Um, I'm almost saying it actually doesn't read on screen. For me, for me, I think in, when you meet them and they're doing the things that need fixing section, which I didn't break it down. I think the movie goes out of its way to paint her as an, as a mother who's doing the best she can, but she's a celebrity who's being pulled a whole bunch of different ways. Mm-hmm. And Reagan yeah. is sort of the last thing. She, it's, it's not that she doesn't care, but it feels like Reagan is the thing that she gets to, is the person in the, the, the energy she gets to spend is the least on Reagan and right. everybody yeah. else is taking care of Reagan and she's, you know, also left to her own devices. And I do think that's fucking they 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 lean heavily onto that in that little section of the things that need fixing on Chris's mm-hmm. character. I, and the fact that Damien okay. is doing they, they paint it. They paint that they paint the parallel of Damien doing the same thing right in his own I, life. I, uh, yeah. I, my, 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 my objection is because. <laughs> It's a- Jamie hasn't gotten to say go no, ahead, no. Go, go, mean, go ahead, Jamie. Go ahead, Jamie. So it's funny because up until this watch, and I haven't watched it in a few years. I it, even in my the the book I'm slowly writing that's taking well, it's pretty much already done. Whether it'll get ever get published or not is another question. But um, <laughs> I, I wrote faith is the thing. I, I kind of put I I used it as an example of like a character arc, you know, kind of yeah, going yeah, from faith yeah. to faith, but. When I watched it this time, and and honestly, this isn't um, feels like mansplaining or parent splaining yeah. or something. When I watched it this time, thinking you know, reflecting of who I am now and stuff like that, and my son has autism, and um, you know, it almost is metaphoric for like the problems parents go through that they can't control with their own ch- children. Sure, and then the guilt that you feel about that, um, even though you may have nothing to do with it, you do kind of feel guilt about it you do kind of feel like you're responsible and to me this movie was metaphoric of that now whether or not you know if you say it's factually not there and stuff it may be a deeper read into the ultimate metaphor because it's 70 How, it's how's more this? subtle i think everything it's not that on the news you're saying is there yeah but it's not the sin i'm disagreeing that it is the sin i don't think that's the sin i think the sin is much more obvious and straightforward she is a modern She's an atheist, modern woman of the modern world. She's more humanist than anything. It didn't even, uh, she didn't even assume anything supernatural could be happening for her. The uh, that world is completely dead. It's old world nonsense. It doesn't exist. Then you have the father who's lost his faith. I mean, I'm just, I'm sorry, but it's just too overtly there. No, to, it's definitely not be, that yeah. be the sin. The other stuff you're saying though is definitely there. I just don't think it's this category of yeah. Well, discussion it, that's all it could be like the again it could be like almost um the nihilism thing or sure or whatever, yeah something where, like nihilism where, atheism where, where she blames herself but 
she you know she's really not to blame it, you know it like the read isn't like she needs to be punished and um but there is a part of me that's like her arc is probably is her arc really that now she's catholic or is her arc now that she's going to hold on to reagan that's and, what i'm saying her new I, way her new yeah. way is like she's going to be hyper protective right? yeah like, i don't even know reagan. that she ever goes to church uh, after this like i don't she doesn't strike me like she's i'll give a, you that finds faith um so anyway, you could argue Reagan will though with the how it ends, right? Like she sees literally the priest and looks at her his collar. We'll and, find out in the next movie, right? Well, <laughs> you can't count well, that. Guess, you can't count. This that. is great because I brought it. I put it on there because I thought it was not so, as cut and dry, dry as you might think, and I'm really surprised to hear that I, Jamie is seeing just, what I'm seeing. I'm just saying it's not the sin. I, I think the I things agree that Jamie that is it's debatable. Though. I think the I thing, like Jamie, the stuff you said about how a parent can't control the things that are wrong or that mm -hmm. they deal with their child. That's all there. Yeah. And I totally agree. I just don't agree. It's the sin. I don't think right. that Chris it, it made some mistake from yeah. what I can yeah. tell on yeah. screen, her daughter and her absolutely have this wonderful, beautiful relationship that makes the horrors of what's to come even worse. So I don't agree there. Like, I think that their relationship being as awesome as it is on screen makes the rest of the movie more horrific. So I just don't see yeah. what you're saying as far as a sin. I, I don't think she's yeah. neglectful no, in that way, I, you know? I So I would even go so far, though, to say, like, her her father definitely is neglectful. Absolutely, absolutely. Sure. Remember, yeah. absolutely. And we remember, don't, we don't know him. It, though. it could be him that's part of the sin as well. Like, mm -hmm. like the movie doesn't seems like show us that. So, but well, just they like go it, they go to great lengths to talk about. Has he called? No, right. It's her birthday. Oh, like like they, yeah. Yeah. it's a modern couple. It's a Catholic mm -hmm. movie. It's a modern couple who's getting divorced mm -hmm. because marriage doesn't actually mean anything <laughs> to them. Mm -hmm. Right. Once again, I think it's That's more true. of a, That's a humanist lack of faith, modernism, all that. That's what I think the sin. I think I think they're both there. I mean, I right. I hear what you're saying, Bob, but but like when we're you know from a teaching standpoint, from an right. instruction standpoint, this sin. When you're like, okay, I got a concept. What can I explore sure. with this concept? Like, and what the sin is supposed to represent the societal ill, right? So the societal ill in 1973 that it feels like this movie is playing with for me is choosing your job over your family. And right. that is that is like what what we're talking about always when we're saying like when you need a when you're doing horror, it's it's gonna it's gonna enhance the horror, right? J Jamie so Jamie just talked about that uh that cosmic, that 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 karmic thing, and I feel like it's definitely there. That like the karmic thing that there's a side they're saying you didn't you didn't pay it you didn't choose your mother over your vocation, so she got put into an institution even though she said to you do not put me into a home because you right. chose your job. I think it's the way the movie and, to me. It's the way the movie always does it. it like happens to him. Like, you know, she gets, yeah. like, thrown into that institution without him even, like, giving the okay. Yeah. For me, I'm always, whenever I watch the movie, I'm always like, yeah, but you didn't really do anything wrong, dude. Like, you know what I yeah. mean? Like, there's that part but, of me where I just don't feel it as much. I'm sorry. I, I, I agree with you, like, but you I think the movie is trying to argue that he he did his 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 neglect i would argue i would argue that I, I would argue that's all set up for pazuzu to use it later more so than anything right 
I don't, I do I don't agree think it's the that. sin. I'm not gonna. I I just don't. I disagree. Everyone, yell at me if you think I'm wrong. No, no, uh, no, no. People, there. write right in. Tell me if I'm wrong. No, the movie goes to great lengths to show that she is everything that you described about her faith. She's atheist, and there's. A, I didn't put it on the discussion. You could argue but that I, being a modern woman also means that she does her job. And she mm-hmm. has to go to her job and being famous and being a part of the spotlight. Mm-hmm. You could argue that is part of that. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. It's yeah. fine. I'm disagreeing with <laughs> I love uh, it. Blake Snyder. Like, who am I? You know, <laughs> so whatever. He gets You're Bob. I, yeah, I, right. I've seen more think, movies than him. I think Blake gets a lot of his um, <laughs> as much as I like his, his things. I actually disagree with a lot of his analysis of movies, right. so it's all good. We've you know, there's a lot past. of things. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of things. I there's disagree. no right answer. That's the best yeah. part. <laughs> right. It almost sounded like you were coughing bullshit. No, on no, the side. I'm, I'm actually coughing. <laughs> the only I'm just like he didn't put his mom there. It wasn't his fault. <laughs> it wasn't his fault. Okay, I'm sorry. No. Go ahead. No, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, did, did you we want to say anything more about the sin? No, that's why it's on there. That was great. A good discussion that, point. You, you know, I kind of want to hear from other people. I do too. Tell yeah. us what you, think. Us what you think. Well, here's here's the funny thing about it. Like, here's the thing that's hard to place my head around. I think we understand that what she's doing is not a sin. Like, us, yes, now yeah. in the modern yes. age, right, right. But yes. in the 1970s, that's what I'm trying to so say. So rare. Like, that's what I'm trying to say. It's, it's hard to say without talking to the writer. Now, on the flip side, you being an atheist the in the 1970s, though, is yeah, also, also a right. Also, faux pas. Right. Um, all of these things are very much you know, double now, whammy. Right. Now, do I do I think William Friedkin um, thought that a modern woman who no. had her own job and no, not in the least, not in the least, no. Do I think William Peter Blady may have? I don't know. I don't know. I'd I don't have know to, I'd have to remember. I don't know, you know I wasn't focused on those kind of things back in the 1970s to really pay attention. Right. But I can tell you that if my mother saw this movie and stuff back then, she probably w- there probably was a sense like, oh, you know, she works, you know, and she doesn't. She leaves her kids to somebody else, and she's divorced. And there would be a certain Look sense. Look what happens. That uh, that was a bad thing. Um, it's, now, it's a stoop, yeah. right? It's, like the neglect comes with the atheism and the humanism and right. modernism and all but, that. But this this only works if the audience feels like, oh, she's she did the wrong thing. That's why, and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be close to my kid, and therefore they'll be okay. Um, that's the only way it works, and I can't really. Whether or not our current audience, I don't thinks, feel like she's not close though. Even back when I watched it, late, like in the nineties, that's never yeah. been a thing. For no, me. I think they have a good relationship. Yeah. I just, but I do think the movie is going to great lengths to show that she doesn't get to spend time with her. Yeah, um, it's it, yeah, it could use the weird thing is Reagan is almost under the influence from the beginning. So yep. yeah, she's always um, when she's saying. Hey, she already talked to like, Captain Howdy, right? Like she yeah, already yeah. you like Mr. Burke or whatever and all that stuff. It's it's influenced. So so you don't get the side of her that's saying, Mom, I miss you. You know what I mean? There's that right. side of it isn't there. So it's like 
the catalyst for all that has already happened before yeah, we're yeah. in we're in media res of all that. So yeah. so that's what throws it off a little bit because it feels like she's already starting to be possessed. I was going to say at the, the beginning, part. the sin is kind of just using a Ouija board. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind yeah, of honest, <laughs> honestly that uh, you know what? I mean, there that is there is truth to that. I mean, there is but you could say that Catholic she got tale. In, she got into it because of the parents were right. It's like drugs, and, right? Well, it's the parents like are smoking. atheists. They don't believe in anything. Yeah. You know, use a Ouija board it's, or whatever. Go ahead. It's like in the 70s. She was smoking dope. Your kids <laughs> right, smoking right. dope. And they got into bad stuff. And then they were possessed. Then they, then they started cussing. And then they murdered a guy. You know? I just came I mean, up that, with a great title for your uh, Pez movie, Jamie. Possessed. Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. It's, Man, green light, <laughs> fucking great. Possessed. Possessed. Possession. Four yeah. quadrant, baby. Yeah. Just think of all the Pez dispensers we'll sell on Halloween. <laughs> That's what it's about. Yeah. <laughs> it's about selling Pez dispensers. Of course. Not, of course not, not, not the movie. Yeah, they they spit out like little green pea soup uh, yes, uh, tablets. Shit writes itself. Man, this, but they're but they're this. green apple flavored. They're not puke yeah. flavored. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Guys, I gotta go. There's there's one <laughs> random just like the mystery jelly beans. Right. There's one random that tastes like puke. <laughs> I got the puke one, dude. That's such That's a right, '90s man. idea. Um, <laughs> okay, you want to talk about horror subgenres? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So this is another thing I've been toying with. Um, so we talked about the Blake Snyder, Blake Snyder genres, and uh, I've thought that Monster in the House has its own series of subgenres. So once you determine your monster in the house, you have a monster, you have a house, and you have a sin. I've come up with a few other uh, subgenres, and these are almost ones I'd like to brainstorm because, like, even if audience members or you guys have other ones that maybe I could come up with. Um, I'm always adding to this little document I'm messing around with. So, um, so here are my subgenres. Oh, and they kind of explain themselves. So I'll go through them really fast. Um, there's monster buddy is my first one. So, you know, there's buddy love, but the monster buddy is the hero has a monster as a friend or confidant, uh, someone who's looking out for them in a monstrous way. So Phantom of the Opera kind of stories. Megan might be this kind of story. Single white female, even though not a horror movie, but a monster in the house story might be this this kind of movie. Um, so the next one is I'm the monster. Um, and in this one, the hero who either through disease, curse, possession, or mental infliction becomes a monster. Um, the horror comes from their lack of control over their impulses or inability to judge right from wrong. So these are things like um, The Fly or, or even American Psycho or maybe even The Shining, even though it kind of happens, you know, a little later, right? I suppose. Um, keep Them Out, which is just trying to keep monsters out of like a building or a place the or some kind of Precinct perimeter. 13 or something like that. It, exactly. The Purge, Green Room, you know, something like that. So that's that's the other one I have. Rio Bravo. Um, Rio Bravo, yeah. yeah. So I, many. I, I, escape the Lair which means they're trapped and they have to get out and there's a monster in the, in the trap. So the Blair Witch Project, um, don't breathe, you know, something like that, you know, somewhere where they're trapped in, in a place of the monster and trying to get out. Um, last Survivor Standing, and these are, these are your kind of screams, Halloween, Friday the 13th. Um, and by the way, I have elements for all these that maybe one in a future podcast we can talk about, but... Um, what the curse. So this is the one I think the exorcist falls under. You know, the difference between what the curse and I'm the monster 
is in this one, the hero or group of heroes has to deal with a curse or outbreak that threatens um, not only their own lives, but maybe the lives of others as well. So it's not like they're the monster, but there's a curse or something. There's some kind of thing that they can't control. You know, something that's almost metaphoric of disease or something like that. And I, I think this particular, this particular, the exorcist has this. Now, I have two elements of these, and I, this is almost what I want to, this is almost the improv part. But I'm thinking the exorcist doesn't have either of these necessarily, or, or maybe it has one. So two elements I have. One is I call dead by dawn. There's usually some urgency to find the solution as it intensifies and or the outbreak spreads, um, leaving little time for mistakes. And this does have that. I mean, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, she um, looks not okay. She's dying, she's dying. man. She's going to die. Yeah. 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 If, if they don't do it fast, because there's even part of me that let like, during the movie, like when when he leaves to kind of go home from his day job, I'm like, that, that part always bugs me. It's like, there should be some urgency to this, right? I mean, I mean, she's killing people up there in the room and she's floating on her bed and stuff. And there, at times there doesn't seem like a, an urgency, even though the editing makes it seem kind of urgent. But if you figure the decision-making of the church and stuff like that and getting the priest there and all is a little slower then, you know, I'm always like, what's going on at night, you know, that night or, you know. Um, I feel like that's intentional intentional yeah. from a tension standpoint. Like they want us to be like, hurt, come like, on, make a decision. Yeah. Off screen movie kind of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. And then the other element I have for what the curse is dark dilemma. Uh, usually the heroes are forced to make painful decisions uh, to protect others or end the curse. Right. Um, I think all, that's there too. That's totally there. You know yeah. I mean? that yeah. He, he chooses to take in the demon. I mean, that's, that's true. That's, that's true. That's the, that's the dilemma. Like he's got to take in the demon himself I, and then kill himself. I guess there's yeah. even a dark dilemma of sorts, just her going to the church, you know what I mean? Yeah. And things like that. You could argue um, father Marion also has the dilemma of kind of knowing right. he won't he make does, it. He, he's not going to make it through. Yeah. This. He knows yes. that he's sacrificing. So they both himself. have a dark yeah. dilemma. Yeah. Right. Right. And that Jamie, so it, tracks with your tracks. Yeah. Your, with your criteria Bingo. there yeah i wasn't <laughs> i wasn't sure and then just to round out uh and i won't go through but hunt a killer is is my other one um solve the puzzle and um i think that's it I think these are great these man are really i can't good. wait to talk about them in future episodes this is yeah great. yeah so they're, they're my subgenres. like once you get that monster in the house you know then you can pick one of these to kind of further uh explore of what your monster in the house is. Yeah, we can start breaking down the patterns that each of those have. That'd be fun. Yep, it's good. <laughs> okay, uh, so they're the subgenres. What's what is? Let's try to make this less argumentative. What <laughs> what's the lock in? Blake is no, wrong. I'm, no, I'm kidding. I'm so excited to talk about this one because, like, when I was watching this, I was like, I cannot wait to hear what Jamie has to say about yeah, this yeah. one. Um. Jamie, do you want to explain the lock-in, and then I want to read the IMDb log it log line. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, and it's funny because I I, have, I do have opinions on on this in general, which we've talked about before. I knew you would, but yeah. um, but yeah, the lock-in is generally speaking, a story breaks down into what Blake Snyder calls, and I always use story DNA, which is it is inherent to a logline. It's a hero. Uh, trying to accomplish a goal, there's an obstacle in the way, and if they fail, something horrible happens, and that stakes. Um, and so you can repurpose it as a question. Will the hero achieve the goal, or will the horrible thing happen? 
you know, that's, that's kind of the way you can do it. Once you know all of those elements, that's the lock. Once they all lock into those elements and kind of the hero knows it and has to take a course of action, then you have the lock-in. Um, so with that said, What's yes. the lock-in? The, the, let me read the uh, IMDb logline. And, and granted, this isn't like your standard best uh, example of a logline, but just to give you an idea of like the movie that people come to see, right? Right. Um, is when a young girl is possessed by a mysterious entity, her mother seeks the help of two Catholic priests to save her life. That's right. the movie the audience is coming to see, right? Nope. But that doesn't start. For 74 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what, so, Jamie, are, what do you consider the lock-in? So so I do, honestly, with, there, there's two sides to look at with this. There's two sides. I think horror movies are unique in that sometimes their log line doesn't match the story DNA. Um, and it's because of the slow burnness. Because you need to keep the movie needs to gaslight horror movies sometimes not all movies <laughs> like and, and this is another thing i've been writing about i'm like there's two types of horror there's one type of horror that becomes survivor mode at at the 30 minute mark okay we're in survivor mode by so they're locked into mode. self-preservation right self-preservation don't kicks die <laughs> i believe all horror movies end up in self-preservation mode at yeah. some point, right? Yeah. Certain horror movies, certain horror movies end up at, at the 25 minute mark. Don't breathe or something like that, you know, might end up there. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street in some ways might end up there in, in some ways. Um, even that has a little slow burn. And then other ones have to kind of gaslight you usually to the midpoint or gaslight the hero, right? They can't let the hero know something supernatural's up to around the middle. Even a movie like Megan, for example, like she doesn't know Megan's a monster until closer to the middle of the movie. Right. And then get out. He says, get out to Chris in, in at the midpoint of the movie. Right. Yeah. That's the very midpoint. Get out. Yep. Yep. And, um, that I think the lock-in happens in that attack in the bedroom in in some ways, the lock-in that's suggested in this log line. However, I think, what movies that are slow burns do is they come up with another story that progresses that isn't really the horror movie. And if you pitched it, it might not be as exciting, but it's kind of like a woman deals with um, her daughter's malady that may be supernatural yeah, right. or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So the question is, when does that lock in? Yeah. Um, and it weirdly enough, it locks in and and that almost becomes like an extended debate in some yes, ways, right? You could argue, you could argue the P, right? Yeah. Like the that, yeah. like that's where it's kind of starts. So, so I, I I I wrote down some time codes, and then I want to see what okay. you guys think. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep. So forty minutes is when Chris comes into the bedroom and sees the first time the bedroom is supernatural. That's not the records flying and stuff. That's just the bed. That's the bed shake. Yeah, yeah. And the supernatural evidence in front of her. Reagan's on the bed screaming, make and it then stop. Chris honey. jumps on the bed and feels it herself. Yeah. Right. And that's 40 minutes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 64 minutes is after all that that um, medical testing. Doctors tell Chris they can't help Reagan. 
and they suggest that she finds an exorcist. So that's 64 minutes before exorcist is even suggested to her. So, and then the last, this, the crucifix scene happens right after that. And then the 74 minutes is when she meets uh, Father, Father Karras and says, uh, what do I got to do to get an exorcism? So that's 74 minutes before she actually makes a first step toward getting an exorcism. So of those, which of which do you guys think? It depends it, on yeah, it depends. what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's interesting yeah, because it's we, interesting, you know, right. standard Hollywood movies, you want to get there like the quarter part. It's, but there, like there's like saying, the lock in for the possession happening and then the lock in for the action to fix it happen. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like the priest lock in and the, it's separate from the possession yeah. lock in. Does that make I sense? I guess what I'm circling around is what is instructive about I, this? I what can learn from this. See, I, I personally think there's, there's two lock ins and I, right, right. I yeah. didn't analyze this as, as much, but if you're doing your save the cat beat sheet and you know, yeah. you don't want the exorcist to come into the finale, you know, and that's, that's already in your mind. They're going to come in in the end. Right. Um, then I think you have to construct the story of the ill girl with the mystery illness, right? That eventually becomes supernatural. And I think then your lock-in is when she has a goal to figure out what this mystery illness is. So I think it happens very early. I think it's like... Wouldn't that be the peeing scene? Isn't that kind I, of the first time Chris like is like, something's wrong with my daughter? Yeah. I, yeah, I, I can... I broke it down. I can tell you. I just feel like that's when Chris gets scared. That's like her first, you know. Because even as she sees supernatural things, to me, I don't think she's completely, completely, completely convinced until, like, (laughs) I killed Father or I killed Burke or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You could argue. The the peeing is 36 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it might even be before the peeing. It might even be like, when she's lying and she starts taking to her doctor, but it's mm-hmm. debatable. Like, cause really she doesn't divert from that medical science thing right? forever. You know, right. it'd be different if she started with like her pediatrician and then she took it to the neurologist or something, but it seems like she just kind of stays and, on the same path. The and Bob, weren't way. you kind of saying that's supporting your argument that the sin, the lack yes, of faith. Yeah. The lack of faith. She sticks with science and, and, you know, if the bed, I was saying to, to Jimmy, if the bed never shook, if she never had proof, this woman would never have assumed to go to religion whatsoever. Like she has so little faith. She needed to see physical evidence of something else mm-hmm. for her yeah. to even so we're consider seeing it. the sin. Yeah, the sin. We're seeing that sin continue continue she just keeps going from this movie's perspective right, the right. wrong way. Right? And, and it's it's right. why this structure, this. This is something we see in horror, but we don't see in as many other, I mean, maybe in drama or something, in pure drama. But this, sometimes the the most fun for these movies is before you turn up all the scares and it becomes the ooga booga horror, right? Right, right. It's like, because yeah. it feels more realistic. It's like, oh, what if I walked up in the room and my my daughter was bouncing on the bed like, you know, yeah, somebody's yeah. going around. Yeah. And it, that's more interesting to us. But once we're like, it's a demon, it becomes a little less, um, I don't know, it becomes a little less horror at homey and it becomes something else. It goes off into some other territory to an extent. Stuff we can't relate to. Stuff we can't relate to. Um, yeah. And that 
you know, no one can relate to that last 10 minutes. It's it's <laughs> nobody. It's, it's kind of what's yeah, and and that's why horror movies and but on the flip side, the reason horror movies work with this while other movies don't is because even though it's kind of low stakes like figuring out your daughter's weird behaviors or whatever, you know, cuz it's not like she's dying or anything. She's just lying and acting weird and some weird stuff going on. We know the audience knows what's going on, so we have superior right, position. Right, right. So we're like, so there's tons of tension and stuff. Like, figure this out. Come on, go yeah. to the Exorcist. Um, yeah. So there's tons of tension just built into this scenario. And the longer she ignores it, the more tense we get because we're like, this is a bad situation. And it's just going to get worse and worse and worse, and it's slowly cranking, cranking. Also, cranking, the tests keep getting more, keep getting Intense, worse. Horrific. And you're like, yeah. God, and get, it really right. feels yeah. overtly like they're going the wrong way, you know? And yeah, that's a good point. Jamie, you kind of hit on something I was originally going to put on the talking points, but I took it off, but I just want to highlight one scene and I wanted to, I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot and see if you have something on your dread flags that this relates to there was one scene that really every time i watch it it makes me like super tense Mm -hmm. and there's nothing to it and it's at 27 minutes so you know talking about the idea of like why does this late lock-in work so well right and that's supporting your thing that the superior position we have makes us go come on um the The movie's called the exorcist yeah get up get to the talk to the priest anyway um there is a scene where she's trying to call it's at 27 minutes um, so the peeing, even the peeing hasn't happened yet. And she's calling Reagan's dad because she's angry that her dad didn't, didn't call for his birthday. And every time the operator says something, she uses the names, the Lord's yep. name in vain, like aggressively. She says, I've been on the line for 20 minutes. Jesus Christ. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, then yeah. you're like, Ooh, don't say it. And then like the next line, she's like, what are you taking a literacy test to get that job for Christ's sakes? And you're like, Ooh, it's like the, um, Ghostbusters two ooze, right? When they're like saying shit to the ooze and, and, it's bubbling, bubbling up, like, right, yeah. and then, and then she says, don't tell me to calm down. God damn it. <laughs> like she almost sounds like a demon, right? Like, um, so I, I don't know which one of your dread flags that is, Jamie, but that scene, I was just like, those are it's so fucking clever. <laughs> that might have been the sin. The hell scene. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. I don't so yeah, I have these things called Oh, dread, I, I get so tense when I watch that scene. <laughs> yeah. I, I have these things called dread flags that I kind of evolved from talking about these things on this podcast that started with uh gosh what was that movie uh barbarian barbarian I yeah yeah it was just a uh, barbarian because he said he read a book and it about red flags uh and you know dating or relationships and he put those in the movie and i realized that's what dread really is it's a series of red flags that are either ignored by a hero or or maybe even they're noticed by the hero but um and, but the audience always notices them. So anyway, one of the ones of my list, my big list of dread flags, I have provoking the monster. Ah, um, there it is. Yeah. Th- though, honestly, it's 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 like one that, what you said, I almost might need an, an, an extra one in provoking the monster. Because one is like summoning the beast, like doing something yeah. that the character the Ouija board. Um, unknowingly will attract the monster's attention. And, yeah, because yeah, the, the Ghostbusters 2 version is provoking the monster, but this version is she doesn't know there's ooze to make bubble up. 
Right. And the, well, right. The, the second one I have is <laughs> I love probably, you're using Ghostbusters too. <laughs> the, the second one I, I have is probably closer. It's mocking the beast. And even though this is mocking uh, God, the beast's enemy, yeah. uh, you know what I mean? It's almost like uh, cutting them off. It's kind of similar in some ways. It's kind of like using this language that's more yeah, powerful totally. Pro- provoking than, the monster is perfect because that's yeah, exactly yeah. what i felt when i'm watching that and i just go yeah. oh, stop saying it <laughs> yeah it could it's, it's almost like it's fueling don't the say candy man again yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no it's good so anyway yeah, anyway good. that scene that i always notice that scene jimmy too mm. so I, it's very it's so simple dude it's very it's so intentional yeah. i know yeah yeah yes yeah yes um do you want to talk about burying exposition with a laugh? Yeah, I put this on here. It's just a quick note because yeah, yeah. as we're, you know, as we said, this is the oldest movie we've ever talked about. And yeah. I love when we watch these older movies, we find the craft that we're still seeing today, still using today, still talking about ways to use it today. And we're finding it in these old movies and it worked just as well then. So um, a very simple way to make, I'm going to use Ghostbusters again. Um, Do it. A very simple way to make exposition easy for the audience to swallow and not seem like it's so on the nose is to bury it with a laugh or bury it with a joke, right? Like that's a big explained Gozer and everything. He's like, that's a big Twinkie. Like that's, they bury it with a joke, right? And I was really pleasantly surprised to see two examples of that in this movie. So she's sitting, it's at 64 minutes. She's sitting in the room surrounded by doctors. And after we've seen 20 minutes of medical testing that just gets worse and worse for Reagan and the, the doctors are at a loss, right? They, they don't know what the fuck to do. Um, and the, so, so they try to tell Chris to put her daughter away like in a mental health facility. And she's like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm fuck you guys. Um, and then they laugh. They say, well, there is this one outside chance of a cure. And they ask her if she has faith and she says no. And they do, they ask her daughter if she has a religion. She says no. And then they say, have you ever heard of an exorcism? And side note, my favorite thing about this is kind of thinking about the fact that society had so little understanding of what an exorcism was that they had to take this scene to even explain it. Right, right. <laughs> right. In nineteen seventy three it was something people talked about so little. We we they had, had to... the exorcist to understand exorcism. Right, <laughs> like right. They exactly. They, they didn't have that. So this is for the audience. So the doctor is laughing at it and the doctors in the room are kind of like half not taking this serious, right? And he explains the long, you know, it's a stylized ritual. The rabbi uh, and the priests do this thing, blah, blah, blah. But the, but the point is, they're, the doctors are laughing about it. And so that makes it easier to swallow for the audience. You know, it's, easy, it's easier for, for you to absorb the exposition. And then Chris says, so you're telling me I should take my daughter to a witch doctor? Because again, she has no faith. That's almost like her mocking the exposition as well, right? So that was just an example I thought that you could learn from. Even the exorcist buries exposition with the joke, right? Um, and then a second one, they do it again when she goes to Father Karras and asks him, she says, how do you go about getting an exorcism to him? And the audience doesn't know. So this is major exposition we need to understand. And he says, I beg your pardon. 
And she says, if a person is possessed by a demon, how do you get an exorcism? And he says, well, first, I'd have to get them into a time machine and get them back to the 16th century. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because he, so he, bar- they, they bury this exposition that's going to happen with a joke. So there's two examples in this movie of our tried and true, the sim- simplest way to make exposition easy to understand and, and execute is uh, bury it with a joke. So I I just I I had to talk about it when I saw it. I was like, hell yeah. Good. Father Karras is I think that also adds to his character a lot. Yeah. Oh, he's uh, funny. His yeah, practicality. His practicality, <laughs> you know what I mean? As a as a priest yeah. too. Um Jamie's types of horror. This is a new thing for the show, kind of. Right? This is a three-parter because I kind of want to get Jamie to revisit the. Sorry, Jamie, but I kind of want to get you to revisit the types of horror, and then I figure we can we can read these exercises, these uh, breakdowns. Cool, sure, sure. Um, and this, so th- these types of horror, we've talked about these before. Um, let me. I'm yeah, I believe this is horror episode number forty-two for us. <laughs> right right oh so we've talked horror 42 times and that and which which is why i've been i'm codifying everything i think about with it um so so the this comes from stephen king's uh uh dance macabre or um, Mm -hmm. bare bones i think his interview uh book as well talks about this um so there he basically says there are three types of horror. I'm gonna paraphrase a little bit because I've changed the verbiage, I think. Even and I, I like yours better for more modern, easy to understand. Yeah, and I, I can't really remember it um all the time myself. But anyway, the first one is dread, which we've talked about, which is kind of it's the anticipation of horror, it's the wind up, it's the tension building, it's it's all those red and I've again translated it to the red flags. It's a constant barrage of red flags that gets more and more tense as we go and, and get towards um, the big scares, the, the something that's coming. The terror is the something that's coming, the horror beat, the terror beat. Um, and it is the monster attacking. It is uh, the vomit of pea soup, even though that might be the next one. That's yeah. <laughs> um, the, the spinning head or whatever, even though that might be the next one. I don't know. But um it's whatever it is, you know, the demon in the room or the monster or it's something. It's the jolt. It's the jolt. Yeah. It's the jolt. It's it's mm-hmm. something that's there and, and it it just, you know, scares you. And you've recodified um, that as sca- just scare, right? That's yeah, the scare. scares. That's yeah. the scare. The scare beat. Because um, a lot of times in uh, modern horror screenwriting, producers will ask you, they'll, they'll chart your scare beats. And that's really what they're charting is these beats, not dread. There, you know, you might be, you might have a script filled with dread, and they might come and say, "We need a scare beat every ten minutes or something like that." And it happens. I've had that, I've had that request many, many times, like more than six, <laughs> you know, or something like that. <laughs> um, so, and I've actually been, you know, on jobs, you know, up for jobs to write in scare beats to punch up scare beats because there weren't enough. So it definitely is a thing. So the scare beat is that. Um, it's not the dread. And last but not least, I almost think this is related to scare beats. Like I think the two are almost two different types of scare beat. Like there's your traditional scare beat, and then there's the gross out. Um, there's something that that just kind of is revolting and gross, and you know, it, and I think you know that when you see it. It's they're the gore shots. In this movie, of course, the pea soup, 
kind of barfing and things like that. They're kind of the gross outs. Like how can you just make people go, ah, not want to look at the screen. And there are the three types of. Yeah. And the way that I broke this down, Jamie is building off of the last time we did this, which was the jaws. You, you know, we sort of figured out by breaking those, those, some of those famous jaws horror scenes down that, that those scare, that scare jolt and the gross out, often were our two types of scares jump yep. bump together like right, the right. gross out isn't always a scare right isn't always a jolt sometimes they you know somebody comes upon it very slowly and it's like ooh, that's gross but mm-hmm. you know th- other times the the scare and the gross out work together so when i broke these scenes down i did two book reports uh I whenever it was a jolt and a gross out, I put them as two types of things together. So, I f- I thought it would be fun to do a couple. I say fun. The scene we're about to read is not fun at all. Um, but it, I thought it would be uh, very instructive to break down two of the famous scenes in this movie and show how it uses these types of horror different recipes, right? It doesn't always have to be dread, scare, gross out. It doesn't always have to be that way. You can you can mix and match and it's very similar to the bad good news bad news technique, which is you have let's say you have a scene and you know what the you know what the pea soup is, right? You're like the pea soup is coming. I I I got to put that. I got that on my outline. I got to write this scene where the pea soup is coming. What do you do? A really easy way to make it more interesting is to kind of sit at a blank sheet and you have your final moment in the end there is the pea soup and to just put a blank sheet and say let's do a scare let's do a dread let's do a scare let's do a dread let's do a gross out you know just play with those blank prompts and then you have your final scare and gross out with the pea soup and you can you can make the scene way more entertaining just by doing that so that's why i thought this would be good to do and and the way i like to think of of my scare scenes is I like to think of a roller coaster. So the dread is going right. up, tick, 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 tick. This, the suddenness of scares can be quick dips or they can be big long dips or they could be a dip up, dip up, dip up. It could be really fast or a dip, dip, you know, sideways or something like that or three for a loop. <laughs> the loops I, the loops I consider the gross outs because they make you puke. That's um, great. <laughs> that's right. I mean, it works. Yeah. It so, tracks. So, yeah. so <laughs> Think of it like you're designing some kind of roller coaster. That's maybe that. we can create. Maybe we can call that. I, I've been waiting for for scare, a name like for coaster scare coaster. <laughs> yeah. For this create, exercise, yeah. Your scare coaster. Scare exactly. coaster. Yeah. We got to um, do Final Destination three so we oh, can talk shit. about the Just coaster the scene. Coaster. The coaster scene. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, but but anyway, Bob, do you want to do the crucifix scene first, yeah. and then we'll do the other one where we read together? Sure, sure. Okay, okay. You just want, uh, so you just want me to read the Yeah, document. just read okay. it. I broke so so for for context, I broke down the crucifix scene, and this has a lot of you know this is you know, violence against the little girl. So it's definitely not fun, but it's an excellent example of how to do this very impactfully um, and like make it, re- you know, make it scary for some, for the audience. So uh, yeah, I broke down the different type, what I saw, thought were the different types of horror. Gotcha. Beat by beat for this famous crucifix scene. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And this happens 73 minutes into the movie. And, and for context, also, this scene is only like a minute and a half yeah, long. Yeah, it's really so short. These are all the beats that are happening. You know, yeah. Okay. First, 
Dread. Chris is downstairs considering whether Reagan is involved in Burke's death as the homicide detective suggests. Scare. From upstairs in Reagan's room, we hear a crash. Dread. From Reagan's room, we hear, please no, don't do it, you bitch, do it. Dread. Chris races upstairs into Reagan's room. Scare. Reagan's window is closed, but the room is windy. Records and books fly everywhere. Scare and gross out. Reagan looks horrific. Face bloody, physically deteriorating. Scare and gross out. Reagan stabs herself in the vagina with a crucifix while the demon inside her screams, let Jesus fuck you. Reading this is pretty... Yeah, reading it out loud. Yeah, that's real. why I said yeah, yeah, no, it's, one, it's bad. Yeah. Uh, scare and gross out. Chris tries to take the crucifix from Reagan's hand. Reagan pulls her mom to her bleeding area and screams lick me uh gross out chris's face is covered in her daughter's blood scare reagan punches her mother knocking her over scare housekeeper run towards the room the door slams shut on its own scare a chair supernaturally slides against the door keeping others out scare a huge dresser slides on its own attacking chris Scare, gross out, and dread. Reagan's head spins all the way around behind her and smiles at Chris. Scare and gross out. Reagan speaks with Chris, Chris's dead lover, Burke's voice. Do you know what she did, your cunting daughter? Dread. Chris screams and cries in the corner, horrified and powerless to help her daughter. So, yeah, I mean, listen to all those different types of right, horror yeah. used in one, you know, one and a half minutes. Yeah. So thanks, Bob. That was. Oh, good. yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty. I mean, that is maybe the most intense scene in the movie. Yeah. I would yeah. I would argue easily. So I mean, yeah. I didn't I didn't do the stats, but that's so many different scares, so many different uses of gross out and like five different uses of dread mixed in there, too. So this this second one, I thought we could read together. We've never done this. Um, this one uses dialogue to play with the horror, the types of horror. And, and we've never really broken down a scene where dialogue is like part of the horror recipe, part of the scare coaster. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I thought that, um, Bob, you could do the same thing, read the, the types of horror and the narration. And then, Jamie, if you want to be uh, Father Karras, and we don't need to say Father Karras, you can just read the lines. And I'll be Reagan, and I'll try not to go overboard with my... Perform. Okay. Oh, everybody wants you to go. Yeah, everyone wants you to give it. Like, chew the scenery, man. So, so again, this is just to this is just to show how you can play with this. Okay, I can I can pile on a gross out. Then I can do another gross out. Then I can make it dread. Pull it back. Then I can do a scare. So anyway. Okay, yeah. so this is seventy nine minutes in. Father Karras Wait, meets I, Reagan. Right. My script. My script is actually from the director's cut. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, wait. Uh, yeah. Dread. Father Karras cautiously enters the house. Dread. As he walks upstairs, outside Reagan's room, we hear inhuman, haggard breathing. Dread. The housekeeper warns Damien that it wants no straps. Dread. Karras slowly enters Reagan's room, creeps open the door. Dread and gross out. Reagan's on the bed in the worst shape ever. Green puke stains on her pajamas. Gray skin. Painful lesions all over her face, eyes yellow, lips torn, a feeding tube shoved into her nose. Dread. Reagan's arms and legs are tied to the bedpost. The bed itself is tied down so it can't move on its own. 
Its hard edges are covered with blankets to prevent them from harming anyone. Dread. Father Karras speaks to Reagan. Hello, Reagan. I'm a friend of your mother's. I'd like to help you. Dread. Reagan speaks in a sinister, adult-sounding voice. You might loosen the straps then. I'm afraid you might hurt yourself, Reagan. Dread. I'm not Reagan. I see. Well, then let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm the devil. That's now a, kindly that was undo a scare. These, that was a scare. <laughs> yeah. Now kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? Dread. That's too much to vol- too too vulgar of a display of power, Karis. Where's Reagan? Dread and scare. In here with us. Show me Reagan and I'll loosen the straps. Dread. Father Karis turns his back to Reagan. Scare. Reagan speaks to him in the voice of a beggar he refused to help earlier. Can you help out an old altar boy, Father? Dread. Father Karis recognizes the voice of the old man. Dread and scare. Your mother's in here with us, Karis. Would you like to leave a message? I'll see that she gets it. If that's true, then you must know my mother's maiden name. What is it? Dread. Reagan scowls at Father Karis. No response. Dread. Father Karis moves close to Reagan. Asks again. What is it? Scare and gross out. Reagan pukes green vomit all over Karis's face. Scare and gross out. Demon Reagan grunts back at him, drenched in green puke. So, yeah, I mean, you can see even you can work in the dialogue to create dread and you can make like responses be scary stingers, right? So the dialogue is weaponized as its own scare, right? Right, I'm not Reagan. You know, your mother's in here with us, by the way. Like, so I just think that's a really that scene was a really instructive way to use these same types of horror but do it while using dialogue right and they mixed in some visible action too with the puke and the he turns his back like he turns his back on her you and the audience are like are you fucking serious dude you're turning your back on her right and and that that creates immense dread so um anyway thanks for doing that That no i I also wanted to say this scene to me is always um been the scene that speaks to what exactly uh the demon is capable of in her body mm-hmm. as in like you know it's a vulgar display of power it's kind of like saying like it's making an excuse why it doesn't know yeah. you know what i mean there's like that <laughs> weird thing like wait this demon doesn't actually know everything or something like it has limitations it, yeah you know, there's you know, some limitations there's some limitations yeah. to it's, yeah. it can be beaten you know yeah. it is not and, all and they definitely use that scene to escalate it's also it's talent it's, right? well, we it's, haven't it's, heard him right well it's like a duel between the two of them you know like yeah like who like who has the upper hand here for real you know um yeah no it's good uh shifting protagonists that's a good thing why does that work in this movie yeah i i one thing that stood out to me you know while watching this that i had forgotten is how like once she you know connects with father Karis, which is not till 74 minutes she takes a back seat and she's been sort of at the forefront of our mind and i kind of wanted to basically i put this on here because I, I we haven't really talked about like dual protagonists or shifting protagonists much and i kind of wanted to see if jamie had any experience with this or thoughts on this or advice on this topic in general that's why i put it on here yeah so it's 
I, I don't know. I have a couple different theories about it here. Um, my first one is that uh, very much in keeping with the 70s and very much in keeping with the realism it was trying to betray, to try to say this is a real story, um, it feels a little mini plot at times, you know, like it's something that can do shifting because that's what would happen in real life is instead of the woman, uh, the mom, uh, it could be a woman, uh, but instead of the mom uh, going in and doing the exorcist, she would hand it off to the expert exorcist. Now, you could see in a modern movie where they try to put the hero star yeah, the mom in there, in there, holding the holding the holy water, and, yeah. and she'd yeah. be the one that would have to make the sacrifice in the end or something. In, in fact, I've written an exorcism movie that kind of does that, and I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't just have her like upstairs hiding, you know, or something like that, right? Um, but this is more in keeping with real life. So part of me thinks that's that's the primary drive here. Um, I it's it's I have three answers to this is what's kind of funny. That's Answer great. number two is. You, the, when I was watching this this time, uh, the conjuring structure always like and all the conjuring movies have kind of an unusual structure where they give you a scene with the with the two people, the two main characters, the two people we're familiar with, um, the Warrens. Then they go off and do like 20, 30 minutes of something else. Not the recent conjuring, by the way, but the first two, at least. Then they go off and do 20 minutes of some completely different group of people discovering they have a haunted house and then they bring them in you know and they right. bring them in around the 30 or 40 minute mark this is kind of that uh on steroids in some ways because in this one we can't really intersect the two characters until until the end you know until the mm -hmm. you know closer to the last third of the movie and those what they do is they, they they're flashing back to the warrens in some ways like like maybe there's the nun is in their house or something, you know what I mean? Or some weird thing. They, they kind of stretch out their B story to remind you the Warrens are part of this, but they're not going to get called into later on. And then they come in and kind of take over. Um, but this movie does something similar to that, which is why I think they give Karis this rich mom, you know, he's, his mm -hmm. mom's dying. He's, he's losing his faith. He's still, you know, all this he's stuff. A, he's they're, a boxer. They show, what, you know, they, he's a they need to they need to kind of keep winking at you and saying, "Hey, this guy, it's this guy's story too." It might not seem like it, but just remember, mm -hmm. he's he's there, and we know he's coming. In some ways, that's that's dread in its own way. Yes, um, it's a sense of dread. Um, so anyway, it's there's a structure that I've seen in other things that is is similar, and, and the Conjuring comes to mind in a lesser, in a different sort of way. Um, and then there's, of course, like something like The Shining or something like that, where the, but in those movies, I think the protagonist shift or, or Psycho or something like that is more done as a surprise. It's, it's the more false done, protagonist, which, right, right. I, false yeah, protagonist. that's why I, I, I didn't phrase it that way. Yeah. Because I don't think this is like, it's not the trying false to hide it ever. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't think this is the false protagonist. No, yeah. no. But yeah. that, that's when I, when initially, when you, when you think about, that protagonist that shift it's usually a trick it's yes. usually um this is not in any way a trick so i i actually i mean that's my long-winded say way of saying i i just think that's the way the story um feels more real and and the the thing they do to try to make it work is to give karis a full-bodied arc and his own 
kind of dramatic story that's not really about the supernatural that plays up to the point when he has to come in and do this thing. Um, so they do give him a almost like a parallel track yep. story. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, the, I just um, the I, I I tracked a couple things because when I get my clients, you know, one very common problem I have um, when I'm you know I don't think I've said it yet on this episode. I read amateur scripts five days a week, mm-hmm. so I'm often working with people who are new or they're in their like third script. You know, they're still you know trying to get their handle on the craft and uh you know working through all of those issues that to in order to get better and one very common thing that i'm dealing with with a arc plot story or a mini plot story is something i call protagonist imbalance which is like we have a movie that doesn't have i'm, I'm reading a script that doesn't have this dual protagonist structure where we have this father cares and the main character disappears for like 15 pages. <laughs> and you're like, wait, where is the main character? Like imagine, you know, if uh, Luke Skywalker disappears from star Wars for 25 minutes, like that's not going to work. Right. You have to, you, so I try to get my clients to find organic ways to bring back those characters, at least for one scene. So the, or so the audience's, reconnected with them emotionally because the thing is the the longer you're disconnected from a character the less you can remember what's going on with them the less you can care about their journey or feel like you know deep feelings for them it's about reconnecting right like as often as possible reconnecting us with the characters and what this movie does a great job of when i went back and studied it for this question is when once we meet um karis once we meet damien for the first 50 minutes, we don't go more than five minutes without being reconnected with him. So even though he's not involved in what's happening with Reagan, we're still allowed to keep catching up with him and feeling things about his own journey. And it isn't until that medical sequence where they're doing all these testings that we go like 15 minutes without seeing them, seeing him. And then once those, that testing is over, he's back on screen every five it's minutes. It's kind of appropriate though, right? About. Yes. Like, like the testing is totally devoid of of him. Yeah. Of, right. of, of the here of the exorcist. But um, anyway, so for me, the things that I learned from this was, you know, it sort of validated that thing or try to keep them, try to keep us organically updated with their character. Right. By like every five minutes or like at worst every 10 minutes. Right. Um, And then the second thing is they absolutely like Jamie, you were talking about its own type of tension of their eventual collision. Like they absolutely are playing with our like superior position of how much these two characters need each other and just, you know, promising they're going to get, they're going to meet up. Like they're going to, it's going to happen in every scene. You're like, are they going to meet up or what? You know, it's almost like a lover's uh, romance subplot in that way. Um, and and I think that there's value. And if you have a story like this where two characters can't possibly meet for the sake of your story until late in the story, to play with those audience emotions of like making it clear that they are destined to connect and finding ways to make us desire that as much as possible, right? Promising this collision every scene you're with the one and they haven't met up with the other, finding a way to make it feel like that's coming soon. So those are the two things. And that, don't, yeah. to, to mention the scene in this movie where she sees Father Karras in the courtyard 
Yeah, she and that's you're like, tease. what is? Yeah, that's yeah, a why, tease. Why is she intrigued by this man? And it's not any point in the movie where like she's looking for a solution of anything. Right. It's she's just walking that. home. Yeah, she's just and, walking and home. And then and at the party, do you remember this is before she's even uh, Reagan's even started showing s- serious signs? Like she hasn't peed on the carpet yet. Uh, Chris is asking the other priests, right? Yeah. about Father about uh damien he's yeah. like who is that guy i saw and so even though he's not on screen we're thinking about him we're reminded of him and we remember what he's going through so yeah right it just stuck out to me it was like holy shit like this they really swap protagonists late it's very interesting yeah um well that that's a perfect segue into talking about damien's arc yeah right i don't have much to say about this but i kind of want to just talk talk it through with the two of you and see if you guys have anything to say it's pretty clear right he does arc right uh yeah yeah it's hard it's always hard when somebody dies with mm-hmm. the arc you know what i mean like the arc what it, yeah 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 so it's like you know it's uh, there's not a, a, him like you know at the end with a thumbs up going i believe again <laughs> right <laughs> like that you know but the uh the jamie i almost did your sticky hero equation but but yeah. i didn't end up doing it but we've talked about in the past then the idea of the the before and after snapshot and jamie's photo finish right and he definitely has a a, like a badass photo finish right like the uh he he asked the demon to come into him in order to save reagan's life and takes a selfless sacrificial leap of literal leap of faith out of a window so but but i i just i wanted to ask if you guys felt like uh because a lot of times we've talked about how some movies don't give us enough of the growing pains along the way. And I do feel like it's lacking in that, but I think it still works. So I think I a lot of I think a lot mm-hmm. of his struggle. I mean, the movie, uh, he's, he, he lacks faith and he's a fighter. I think those two things are right. his essential characteristics. And he's kind of like a man fighting a war in his own mind. And a lot of That's that well is said. not as visual as you know what I mean? But it's a performance thing on mm-hmm. the page. I think that there's less of it, but I think that his performance sells it. So that conveys it. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, like his performance really sells that. He's just inside of his mind. He's always struggling. You definitely feel out. that. Yeah. I mean, even at the end, you can argue that he loses himself at the beginning. I mean, he does punch. He's a boxer who punches a little girl like three times in the mm-hmm. head, in the mm-hmm. head. He yeah, loses it's not himself. going good. <laughs> he loses himself once again and then catches himself and says, oh, no, I have to do this is what I have to do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even then, he's like warring with himself. How he should, like there's a part of him that's like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to beat this thing to death, mm-hmm. which is terrible. But also mm-hmm. like that was part of what the weak part of him fighting with the strong part of him, which is taking it within himself and sacrificing himself. So that know. was a great that was a great observation. He we have gone one character arc after another that we've tracked where they take one huge step backwards right before they arc like punching George her in the fly. head is a pretty yeah. big that's step a big they they get so close and then they take this huge step backward before they take their climactic step, step, forward. step forward yeah he so. catches himself just like George. yeah like he catches himself like this is what i shouldn't be that's and good. then he does what he should do you know yeah so i didn't have much to say about that i just thought it was you know, it, it definitely not, is. A, yeah, the, that ending is I, I feel like with this movie, that ending's not talked about as much with his and his ending, because mm-hmm. like the physical altercation is like kind of the thing that 
it defies all logic of what the movie's about is saving this little girl <laughs> and, he's and he loses it and he's yeah. a boxer who punches her in yeah. the head and i'm always like yeah. like he could have killed her just doing that like he could have almost yeah no that's her, true like, just doing that it's not that you know so it's always yeah. that always stands out to me and i feel like it's never mm-hmm. discussed it's it's a little weird like exorcism movies are really hard to write i think for this reason because once the exorcist could pull it off because again it was almost like based on a true story or something if you believe it so it but in the end an exorcism movie is really just like these horrible things happen and then some priests show up and read from some book and then all is cured you know and it's and in in this case, it doesn't quite work that way, and it seems like it's hard and stuff like I mean, that. The exorcism kind of doesn't work. It doesn't. It doesn't, it doesn't work. work. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, you know, he he takes it in and then and then kills himself essentially. So um, uh, I don't know. It's it's they're they're tricky to write. Like, how do you get out of it in the end? And now <clears throat> now a lot of exorcism movies, what they do is they. You have to solve like a puzzle to figure out how to do the exorcism mm-hmm. or something. Reverse There's some, the curse of yeah, the, yeah. and it, they make it feel less realistic in some way. I mean, if you've ever seen Supernatural, the TV show, there's like nine billion exorcisms an episode. <laughs> it's usually I think, just black smoke leaving somebody's mouth. Yeah. yeah, I think I think getting to the, our next topic in some ways, the lack of logic to it or whatever is kind of what makes it feel more real yeah more yeah yeah very you know the fact that we really can't understand it but it's just some weird agent thing that so works you mean you know? for lack of a villain's plan or motive yes. is what you're talking about why does, why, why does this movie work without it yes well what's the i mean we don't know the motive of why the devil or pazuzu does his things we know so, that he wants to kill the so, he wants so to take he, the girl right like so here's the, I'll, I'll i'll give you some examples from yeah, yeah. about this movie and then i kind of i brought this up for this larger conversation because it's a it's it's in it's another unconventional thing about a horror movie, right, right right um so in the original cut there's no discussion of why this girl in the director's cut there's a line from the novel that they put in the movie uh right when they're sitting outside the steps when they take a break from during the finale um uh Damien says to Father Marin, why this girl? It makes no sense, right? Sort of like acknowledging the fact that there's no motive, right? Yeah, and yeah. it's all borderline insecurity line, right? Um, Father Marin says, I think the point is to make us despair, to see ourselves as animal and ugly, to reject the possibility that God could love us. Now, the reason I brought this up is because that's as much explanation as we get as to why this might be happening right and one of the most common ways and then there's all these like fan theories we're like well Marin, it's there's a there's a grudge between the demon and Marin, and it knew that he was weak and brought him back and blah blah, blah. that's not in the movie you can't get that from watching one 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 watch but um mike one of the most common questions my clients who are writing horror ask me is this question why can't my killer just be evil why does my killer need a motive motivation and they find it very frustrating that like a modern audience demands like a motive from the killer and so that's why i wanted to bring this up why does this one work i think there's you know uh i don't have any terms like you guys always do but i mean it's real world stuff with the actual like format of evil here right like mm-hmm. with possession even the myth it nobody knows why it, people got possessed and i think you can also double down on it with like the devil 
being, you know, the evil version of God. Lord works in mysterious ways. People don't know why God does the things God does. Right. Why would we understand the devil? Right. So this is very specific to this. You yeah. know, it's different than having like a slasher or something that has a reason. You know, it's very right. specific. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I read a book I remember. Um, I can't remember if it was shock value or I, I can't remember what the book was. Um, but it was basically, it analyzed a bunch of the early horror kind of movies in the seventies. And it said how it kind of went from monster. We couldn't understand was scary. And then they started to get a monster. We could under that had a plan and it might've been less scary. Like, so Michael Myers, we didn't understand why he did it at first in the first movie and Halloween. And in some ways, that was more realistic and scary that somebody could just start killing people for no reason at all. Like that was more fear about that. And then as the eighties went on, the killers always had to have motives. Um, and I, I might be prescribing saying less scary. I don't think the book said that, but it just kind of pointed out that horror movies trended towards the killers having plans. And I, I think depending on the movie, I think the more Hollywood it is, they tend to have plans um, or there tends to be some, why did they do it? Note that comes up. Mm -hmm. And I think the more a 24 they are maybe, or the, the more, love, um, more Lovecraftian yeah, it is, you know, the Lovecraftian, we cannot understand the infinite kind of thing. Um, or, you know, I, I think we don't understand. And I, I think it's more realistic that we don't understand because we don't even know if these things are real. So movies like Blair Witch Project and stuff, we don't really understand what the hell is going on there. Mm -hmm. It's just like, there's this monster and we don't I'm, know. What's going yeah. I'm reminded of one of my favorite Samuel Jackson lines from 1408. It's just an evil fucking room. Right. <laughs> like that's, like in the end, that's just what it is. This room is just, mm -hmm. I, you know. I don't know if it was Bob and I that had this conversation. For some reason, I think it was Bob about Paranormal Activity 2. Did, was I it might have been us. Yeah, it might have been. It was like, yeah. what's the ghost plan? He's like pulling the, the pool cleaner right, in and out yeah, of the Yeah, it's like, like it, why are you doing that, dude? Like, what, yeah, that was definitely what, me, Jamie. You know, <laughs> why, why would a ghost do that? You know, why, why, why are, are the people, ghosts, you know. Why are ghosts always opening cabinets and shit? Yeah, like, what like, are you lights doing? Off. Like, well, it's nothing better. Point. There's no better evil. <laughs> You know? <laughs> Why are you always futzing around with kitchen supplies and moving shit? Like, did you just start doing it? Yeah, it's like. It's but like, if what? you explain What's that, then it's not funny. But it's right. a good sketch, right? Like mm -hmm. showing what a ghost is doing in a house in a real horror movie, and they're just like, "Okay, I'm gonna move this door three inches." Yeah, all right, time, time to get back to hard right. day's work done and accomplished. Let me go to bed. You know what I mean? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> So, yeah, well, all that stuff has no actual motive, right? Like in any of those movies. That's true. Why do the sounds happen the way they do? Why is <laughs> why is Pazuzu in the attic having weird crash orgasms or whatever the hell he's doing up there? Why that? What is that? <laughs> we don't no, know. I think both of you guys hit on what I often end up coming to, which is you know, it's really dependent on the premise yeah. and the, the monster, right? And and if it's a serial killer, you're going to need that. They need a motive, right? right like, exactly. And if it's a... This in Seven, is a, he has a motive. He has a plan yes, and a that's reason. A, the whole right. premise is about his motive, right? So right. It's, it's really premise dependent. And what I usually, when I get this question, it's a serial killer. Who was a serial killer? Need it? Well, 
because because it, it's 2023 and that's the audience expectation so but in this case i think bob you you hit it on the the nail on the head it's like the dark version of why does god do what god does if you believe in that sort of thing the inability to answer that is painful and scary right and so the inverse of that with there, the devil is a great answer you don't need to question. explain why the devil is evil ever mm-hmm. it's right. the devil it's literally the character that is the personified evil so that's why it works. So, yeah it works because of that you know even though it's pazuzu and that's a demon but a demon doesn't need explanation for why it's hurting a little girl and lying with every word it says that's just of course it's a demon like I, well this the, is fun, funny <laughs> this is the opposite of the hereditary argument you and i had where i was yeah. like no and it, and yeah, that yeah, was yeah. the reason that i got upset there and we don't need to go into that much more you can I listen to the hereditary it, so is <laughs> that the movie half-assed explained and yeah. my issue was the half-assed explanation they took the time to to half-ass explain it and that that explanation was very ambiguous and unsatisfying for me and i would have rather they have just said it was the demon you know the devil and i, I would have been satisfied with that ambiguity but anyway i haven't <laughs> listened to that episode since we <laughs> i haven't it, either so, yeah, but yeah, i remember yeah. that because i, I still feel that way well yeah. hereditary did it because you know i have to debate these things with people who are why do you have a why why do you think this doesn't work well it worked in hereditary well I don't think it worked in hereditary, but <laughs> alturally it did. Yes. <laughs> it, it's still I mean it's still a relevant movie, but it yeah. did not work in Bo is not afraid. But it did work. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it either. But yeah, but in the end, I just don't think you need to explain the devil. That, I agree. I agree. It. It, that's it. it yeah. I, and for all the clients of Jimmy's, if it's a human, you might need to explain why a human does the things a human does. <laughs> yes. Because the audience you. is the audience is a bunch of humans yeah right yeah so you need yeah. to explain that you know yeah. um and i think that brings us to our relevant listeners question doesn't yes it? yes uh this is a question from well first off you want to say if you have a question where do we send where do they send their questions jimmy writers blockbusters podcast at gmail.com at gmail. send us your questions your comments yeah Tell yes. me why I'm wrong about the sin in the exorcist. That's fine. Tell you, me I, why I'm wrong about hereditary. Right, right, right. J- I mean, don't go too hard on Jimmy. He took a whipping for that one. I remember, <laughs> I the, I remember on Facebook, he took a whipping for that. <laughs> like 50 comments. <laughs> 50 comments, yeah. <laughs> Jimmy doesn't like hereditary. <laughs> okay, um, so this question was from Harrison Thompson, and I'm just going to read it. Uh mm-hmm. Do I'm just reading number one, right? Just Jimmy? number one. Okay, yeah. just number one. Do I need to torture my main character? I ask because I don't like to torture people, but I do think it's a flaw in my writing. Things are too tidy, and I'm too nice to my main characters because I love them. Why is torturing main characters inherent to a great story? This is a great question. Great question. Very, very simple and straightforward, too. Mm-hmm. Um. You, I mean, who wants to go first? I could, I could bring up the thing that I said earlier. Go first, Bob. Uh, go for it. Yeah, uh, there is something trending on Twitter earlier this week that I believe me and Jamie both retweeted, and it was a, a person who basically made the argument that making your characters in a script or a film have sex is problematic because the characters didn't give consent to do that. The fictional characters. Yes, that is a person that's a human said those words. 
And I think to to answer with this question in mind is that you can make characters do anything and it's okay because they're not real. <laughs> Torturing them is okay. They're not real. Uh, just, you know, like I understand that. I think that also from the perspective of this question, he says, you say that you love them. Well, the audience doesn't love them yet. The audience might love them, but torturing them, putting them through hell, and then showing their character shine through and come out in the end will make them love them. But they don't care at the beginning. Give them a reason to love them, and that's going to have to be through conflict and resolution, reaching goals, all that stuff. You know, it like ma- you got to make the audience love them. They don't love them yet. They don't even care about them. <laughs> so that's the reason is you got to put your characters through something to give the audience, uh, you know, love for them. So that's me. That's Jamie, me. you want to, you want to hit this? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I mean, honestly, when you think back to like stories, they're all, uh, Christmas Carol, right? Is that's, that's our story. You have a flawed character and we, as the audience know that character is flawed. I don't know. Does, does uh, Scrooge have save the cat moments? Like, is there uh, any reason I, to love I am excited. We're going to do that sometime yeah. soon. Maybe this uh, yeah. Christmas. Because this is there reason to like Scrooge the Christmas Carol? Yeah. Well, <laughs> or Scrooge. Now Scrooge. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Scrooge has Bill Murray, so Bill Murray always gets away with having non save the cat moments. <laughs> you just like Bill Murray. If we um, just do the Muppets, I don't think that he has any save the cat moments before before he gets visited. I don't think that happens. Yeah, and I don't think. Scrooge really does. I'd have to analyze. I mean, I can't say I've read Christmas Carol. And I have, but it was like in the mid nineties. I don't remember. I always, I always think I'm as really horrible, you know, 100%. But anyway, uh, so usually they're, we are presented with characters we like, but have a flaw. So in some ways, in a, in a weird sort of way, um, I wouldn't say we're rooting for them to be tortured, but we're rooting for them to change. And the story is what changes them. Um, And then on top of that, stories, the fuel for stories, the thing that keeps you turning the page is tension. So if if the hero is our surrogate, you want to give the story, the the most tension the story can have is by torturing in some ways that, that hero. I mean, I even have a technique for it in my book. Which, you know, so I'm, I'm a proponent. I, I think I might even say in my book, you have to torture your hero. I mean, I might use those terms. But in my, in my book, Save the Cat Rights for TV, I have a thing called the broken compass. And the broken compass is basically a mission statement that you write about your character based on their flawed behaviors. So it might be like, I'll never spend a dime. I'll never, you know, I'll never help anybody if it costs me, you know, for the Scrooge's obvious uh, broken compass. So then one way to write your story is to look at, you know, their playbook, you know, how they tick, you know, you see the inside of the box. So then you can create scenes that force them to do those things or, or to not do those things and have a lot of pain because they won't do those things. Like if they just do those things, they would be able to, um, not be tortured, but because they're flawed, it's torture. So you're really not torturing them, so to speak, even though that's, you should kind of torture them as well. The things should go wrong. They should have bad luck, all that stuff. But, <laughs> but in some ways, this torture is a good thing for them. Ultimately, that's the way I'd have it, but it's also good for your story because it provides the most tension. 
Yes. So yeah, there are my two reasons that I right. say proof, I proof torture for fiction. both of your answers. Both of your answers. I'm going to pile on to the listener. It's a fucking fantastic question. Um, I'm going to add in to what you guys said. Agree. Um, so I talk a lot about the nightmare fuel exercise. Uh, the very first thing that I do when I'm you know, coming up with a character and figuring out who they are is ask, what is the worst thing that could ever happen to them? And this is in comedies too. Again, I've used the play in trains and automobiles episode uh, example all the time because it's a comedy and Steve Martin's character is terrified of emotional connection with other humans. So the story is kind con- he doesn't like to talk to people. He doesn't like to be nice. And the story is constantly forcing him to be in close quarters with people who all they want is emotional connection with you. And so it is a night one nightmare scenario for him. It's funny for us to watch, but for Steve Martin, it's torture one scene after another. That's just nightmare scenario after another comedic nightmare scenario. So this doesn't necessarily have to mean physical torture. It could mean emotional torture and it could be funny. Um, But I'll give, the spider if you are interested in this topic the spider-man no way home episode uh peter has 14 different nightmare scenarios like one worst peter's worst nightmare after another after another and that creates dilemmas nightmare scenarios create dilemmas for your characters and that forces them to make meaningful choices in exam for example in the exorcist Reagan's medical testing is not working. So her mother, Chris, has to make a meaningful choice to double down on the medical testing and put her in, into even more rigorous medical testing that puts her daughter in even more pain. So she's not, so Chris, the mother, is not being physically tortured, but she's being emotionally tortured and she's being forced to make choices for the sake of her daughter's, you know, for saving her daughter that hurt, you know. And um, just piling on the nightmare scenarios, asking yourself, what is the worst thing that could happen to my character? And making a long list of that, that's instantly going to create scenarios that force your character to make meaningful choices. And when the character makes meaningful choices, that's how you show the audience who they are and how they're growing and changing, or in a tragedy, how they're going the wrong way and ultimately never growing and changing. You know, So uh, I think that torturing your character quote unquote is the key to forcing growth and change and forcing like creating emotional connection with them like you said bob that's how we learn to care so much about them because we see them overcoming the their worst nightmare right right you we fall in love yeah yeah when you see someone overcoming their worst nightmares and they come out on the other end stronger for it that is engaging you know that is rousing so yeah Absolutely. I am a proponent, like Jamie said, like, yes, torture them. Yeah. Make it I as think, hard as possible. And torture doesn't, yeah, like you said, I just want to make sure it's clear. Torture doesn't mean Saul, okay? Like, Yeah, it, that's what I'm it saying. It means so yeah. many different things. It it comes right. in so many different flavors. It, we don't Something mean, about Mary, uh, uh, Ben Stiller's character. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> He's just put absolutely put through torture. hell. Right. Yes. Nothing goes right. Right. Yes. So, uh, but it's not physical torture. Yeah. 
That was a great question. Thank Harrison. you for the question. Love thank it. you. So, and also, I just want to thank you. It says here that you uh, support the Patreon. I just want to thank you for that, too. So That's awesome. And every, like, yeah, if you want to send us questions, people, like, just to reiterate again. Writers Blockbusters Podcast at gmail.com. I've been getting a couple of a couple a month now. I'm excited about it. So very cool. Uh, I think that brings us to the end of the Exorcist, guys. Yes. We did it. We did it. Yeah. Happy Halloween ish. <laughs> and uh, I say that as a tease. Tease. <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah, do you guys have anything else you want to plug, say anything? Nope. I don't think so. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. Tubular Bob. bells. <laughs> hey, this is Bob Rose, and thank you for listening to Writer's Blockbusters. If you'd like to financially support the show, please consider joining my Patreon. I've been producing the podcast for several years completely out of pocket, and I'd like to keep producing it ad-free and no longer at a loss. If you'd like to help, head on over to patreon.com slash Bob Rose sucks. That's right. Bob Rose sucks. And if you want the one and only Jimmy George to help polish up that writing project you're kind of struggling with, head on over to scriptbutcher.com. As a listener, you already know he's the best there is. Scriptbutcher.com. You can also support the show by simply sharing it or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate both. Thank you for listening and see you next episode. <laughs>